Today's lecture is the final program in a three-part series investigating the culture of health and healthcare in the United States. If you missed our most recent program in the series, which was a thoughtful book talk by Mimi Baird on her recent book, He Wanted the Moon, The Madness and Medical Genius of Dr. Perry Baird and His Daughter's Quest to Know Him, you can watch or listen to it online through our website, where you can also find many of our other lectures and book talks and programs uh, to review after the fact. Our guest today is Susan L. Mizrucki, Professor of English and Director of the Boston University Center for Humanities. She's the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, Huntington Library, National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Fulbright Commission. She holds a PhD in English from Princeton, and her work lies at the intersection of social, religious, and literary studies with particular emphasis on American literature and film, literary and social theory, and the history of the social sciences. Dr. Mizrucki's books include Brando's Smile, His Life, Thought, and Work, and Becoming Multicultural, Culture, Economy, and the Novel, 1860 to 1920. This afternoon, Dr. Mizrucki will explore the potential of the humanities to provide major insights, both into the social stigma associated with addictive behaviors and the subjective experience of addiction as they're seen through literature. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Susan Mizrucki. Thank you, Hannah. And uh, I should say that it's a pleasure to be lecturing in this beautiful room. We hear a lot these days about the imperilment of the humanities. Enrollments in English, classics, and philosophy are way down. Job prospects for humanities PhDs are greatly diminished. And there is talk in Washington of abolishing agencies like the National Endowment for the Humanities, which funds humanities projects and institutions throughout the country. But with imperilment comes opportunity. And our current challenges, I believe, make it all the more important for us to reach beyond the university walls and our academic debates to demonstrate for a wider public all that the humanities have to offer. To this end, we are committed to turning the BU Center for the Humanities into a public space every fall by hosting a major public forum on a subject of pressing social concern. Our first major event this October is a forum on libraries, archives, and digitization, co-sponsored by the Boston Athenaeum and the Boston Public Library. We have scholars and practitioners representing academic, governmental, nonprofit, and commercial institutions coming from all over the world to share their expert knowledge on these subjects. Our second forum in fall 2018 will address the opioid crisis and bring together people in the humanities with those from medicine, public health, and government. My talk today is a step toward a humanities-informed approach to the op opioid crisis. And just first slide, this is the Roman Forum that we are hoping to update um, through our Humanities Center. As a professor of English at Boston University for the past 30 years, I believe that great literature 
as well as great films and even TV serials, which I have begun to teach recently, can illuminate almost any social problem. If a problem affects humanity, there is some writer or filmmaker who has addressed it profoundly. Indeed, great literature, and this is especially true of American literature, my specialty, is particularly focused on cultural pressure points or wounds. When it comes to the problem of addiction and what our contemporary society confronts as the opioid crisis, literature provides an especially valuable repository of insight because so many major writers have been addicts themselves and written both with great poignancy about the condition of dependency and also with unsettling exuberance about the mental transport afforded by drugs such as opium, cocaine, and heroin. Let me begin with a simple observation. We tend to think of addiction as an affliction of helplessness and weakness that plagues the most lost and vulnerable among us. Yet when one looks at major Anglo-American cultural traditions, we find that many who have ennobled the world with their aesthetic gifts and prophetic insights have struggled throughout their lives with addiction. Addiction to alcohol and drugs has had a profound impact on the lives of literary lights such as William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway, been the subject of esteemed works of literature, and now increasingly captivated the creative imaginations of those working in an area that today attracts formidable cultural talent, TV serials, where some of the most popular and also masterful shows concern the production, distribution, and consumption of drugs. My point is that drugs not only afflict us, but they engage and even inspire, have always engaged and inspired, our creative and intellectual energies. By exploring some examples of how artists and intellectuals have written about opioid addiction, I hope to expand our understanding of this phenomenon beyond the presumptions of misery and abjection. Just to be clear, I am in no way endorsing or trying to minimize the enormous suffering and destruction that have been caused by drug and alcohol abuse. I am saying that if we are to stand a chance of alleviating the opioid crisis and other addictions, we need to fully understand the many motives that drive it and the many experiences that its users have had. We need a better grasp of what draws people of all classes, cultures, and aptitudes into drug dependency. Our graphs and statistics can only take us so far, though of course more comprehensive and nuanced data are always welcome. But what we need especially are concepts and narratives, stories, describing the experiential side of the crisis in all of its daunting variety. And this is the kind of light afforded by the humanities. We may think we know very well why people take drugs. 
and what the best ways of treating addiction are. Drugs dissolve boundaries between worlds, between the ordinary and the extraordinary, the real and the surreal. They liberate us from inhibitions, from the demands of etiquette and self-control. They can make us feel wiser, more powerful, and beautiful. They also help to relieve pain, physical and mental, transporting us beyond realms, to realms, excuse me, beyond suffering, helping us to forget difficult or traumatic events. People learn addictive habits from those close to them, family and friends, and also have genetic predispositions toward addiction. We know organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous have had great success with their 12-step detoxification programs, and that most addicts do best when they swear never to take the addictive substance again and manage to keep the promise. But I would suggest that the crisis proportions of our current dilemma confirm that we are still missing a lot in our understanding of both the causes and cures of drug addiction. So why not learn from the best and the brightest in our long cultural tradition about the cycle of drug taking and addiction? The ties between literature and opioids is as old as ancient Greece, where Homer sang in book four of the Odyssey about opium as, quote, the drug to heal all pain and anger and bring forgetfulness of every sorrow. A partial list of significant literary addicts includes Samuel Taylor Coleridge, author of Rime of the Ancient Mariner and Kublai Khan, Thomas de Quincey, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, Charles Baudelaire, Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, Stephen King, David Foster Wallace. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who became addicted to morphine at the tender age of 15 after a spinal injury, reported as an adult in a letter to her brother that, quote, I am in a fit of writing, could write all day and night, and long to live by myself for three months in a forest of chestnuts and cedars in an hourly succession of poetical paragraphs and morphine draughts. The list of literary works and films and classic TV serials that have treated the experiences of addicts with empathy and intelligence is a long one. It includes, among others, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, De Quincey, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Dickens, George Eliot's Silas Marner and Felix Holt, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Wilde, Sonny's Blues, James Baldwin, Naked Lunch, Burroughs, Infinite Jest, Wallace, Breaking Bad, and The Wire. 
I'm going to focus in today's lecture on three major examples of addiction in literature and TV to give you as detailed a sense as possible within our time frame of different aesthetic treatments. I'll cover romantic addiction in Thomas De Quincey, realist addiction in David Foster Wallace, and contemporary addiction in Breaking Bad. The literary romantic case concentrates, as we might expect, on the trials of the individual addict, but also on the imaginative power conferred by opium. The fictional realist case concerns primarily the psychology of addicts and the causes of addiction, as well as the various social worlds, educational, medical, and therapeutic, that both motivate and manage drug dependency and try to cure it. The contemporary TV case reveals the complex criminal, legal, law enforcement systems that make the eradication or even diminishment of drug trafficking in the U.S. seem so depressingly difficult. Each of these successive examples takes us deeper into the weeds of addiction. We move from a focus on the addict and his habit in De Quincey to a systemic analysis of the social values and political and economic circumstances underlying this growing social problem, the central affliction of contemporary American life, according to David Foster Wallace, to an even broader account in Breaking Bad of addiction as a global problem that erases boundaries of all kinds, professional borders between different between criminals and law enforcement, ethnic and national borders between different cultural groups and countries, and experiential borders between ordinary middle-class citizens and irreverent misfits who live on society's margins. We begin with the great romantic writer, Thomas de Quincey, who characterized himself as, quote, the Pope of the true church of opium. De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater, first published in 1821, led to the identification of addiction as a field of study in his time. As Althea Heider, author of Opium and the Romantic Imagination, has asserted, and this is a long quote, quote, it was not till Confessions of an English Opium Eater was published and aroused enormous interest that opium addiction began to be considered as a separate medical and psychological phenomenon which ought to be studied. Till then, even the medical writers who had devoted books to the study of opium had spent little observation on the different effects of addiction and withdrawal from addiction, on the differing symptoms of the early and the later stages of addiction, on the different types of addict, the man who can stick to a moderate, never-increasing dosage, and the man who must always be piling his dosage higher and higher, the occasional indulger and the utterly enslaved daily habituate. De Quincey is often blamed, and rightly so, for the terrible fascination of his masterpiece in drawing in others 
to follow his example. But he is not often given credit for the impetus that his book undoubtedly gave to the scientific investigations which have helped and saved other addicts, unquote. As De Quincey put it, opium gives and takes away. You can follow these quotations on this slide here. Quote, this is all from Confessions of an English Opium Eater. The great gift of opium was access to a new world as different from this as Mars may be, where color is a symphony and one can hear the walk of an insect on the ground, the bruising of a flower. In the enchanted land made available by opioids, shades of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's forest of chestnuts, humans are liberated from the limits of space and time given the illusion of escaping the dire limitations of human existence, approaching immortality. But more pronounced in De Quincey's memoir, which one critic called an Iliad of woes, were the horrors of opium consumption. Quote, sometimes I seem to have lived for 70 or 100 years in one night, I was stared at, hooted at, grinned at, chattered at by monkeys, by parakeets, by cockatoos. Thousands of years I lived and was buried in stone coffins with mummies and sphinxes, in narrow chambers at the heart of eternal pyramids. I was kissed with cancerous kisses by crocodiles and was laid confounded with all unutterable abortions amongst, amongst reeds and nilotic mud. As much a product of the 18th century world of moral absolutists like Alexander Pope and Dr. Johnson, as he was a 19th century romantic, De Quincey wanted his confessions to be, quote, useful and instructive, unquote. And what most stimulated his literary expression were the trials brought on by lifelong consumption of opium, rather than the pleasures experienced in the early stages of the habit. De Quincey commented, quote, the opium eater loses none of his moral sensibilities or aspirations. He wishes and longs as earnestly as ever to realize what he believes possible and feels to be exacted by duty. But he is powerless as an infant and cannot even attempt to rise." Unquote. As the great romanticist critic Meyer Abrams noted of De Quincey and fellow addict Samuel Taylor Coleridge, whose life was also devastated by the physical and mental tortures of addiction, quote, Many were the works they planned, but never began, unquote. What they did manage to produce, partly under the influence of opium, must be, Meyer Abrams again, quote, more dearly cherished because of the fearful toll exacted for beauty stolen from another world, unquote. This next section, 
treats realist novelist, novelistic accounts of addiction. Let's see if I can get back to the slide. And my example, David Foster Wallace, one of the leading writers in the contemporary U.S. canon, suffered from alcoholism as well as opioid addiction and went through a legendary rehabilitation in Boston area facilities so recently that some clinicians and even former residents still remember him. In contrast to De Quincey, who focuses on the imaginative effects of opioids and on the moral trials of individual addicts, Wallace takes a systemic approach to the society that both produces and tries to cure addictive behavior. Like Herman Melville, who in Moby Dick portrays the New England whaling industry as the key to understanding 19th century American culture, Wallace, in his great novel, Infinite Jest, 1996, represents addiction and the medical system and drug industry that enable and treat it as keys to understanding U.S. culture in the 1990s, a view that we might recognize now in 2017 as highly prophetic. Infinite Jest is a Boston novel set in many of the neighborhoods, Alston, Brighton, Cambridge, abutting my place of work, BU. Its localness makes it even more valuable to the task of illuminating our New England opioid crisis. By representing the world of addiction through the specific characters and psychologies of addicts, and through a sociological appraisal of the institutions that seek to rehabilitate them, Wallace manages to capture particularities as well as larger trends zeroing in on the rituals and etiquettes that define behavior in every social sphere, from the riverbeds on the Charles where homeless addicts reside, to the private schools where driven, high-achieving young addicts deal and consume, to the rehabilitation centers where most of his characters end up. What Wallace celebrates above all is the power of language, the vital and innovative diction, idioms, and lingos favored by street people and students, patients, clinicians, friends, family. No one has written with greater insight and empathy about the experiences of drug addiction than Wallace, whose narratives are reproduced on the next four slides. Like other major writers of the U.S. literary tradition, and James Baldwin comes to mind for comparison, Wallace is as renowned for his non-fictional essays as he is for his fiction. Wallace has memorable essays, for instance, about the game of tennis. He was a ranked tennis player in his youth. And also about U.S. habits of television watching which he considers, somewhat ironically, to be a functional or positive narcotizing behavior or addiction. It is important to recognize how Wallace's personal experience of the heights of American success informed his understanding of addiction. An accomplished teenage player on the professional tennis circuit, 
a top student at elite schools, following a stellar undergraduate career at Amherst College, he entered graduate school in philosophy at Harvard. And also a celebrated writer in his 30s, welcomed by the literary establishment as one of the best young novelists of his generation. Wallace was familiar with the expectations and pressures that accompany success in the competitive, status-conscious world of late 20th century America. The need for narcotizing Wallace shows in what Newsweek magazine dubbed his grading American novel, and that's the image right there, is built into our contemporary social political system and its hierarchies. None of us would survive without our different forms of self-medication. But some of us do a better job than others of restraining ourselves. Wallace, who committed suicide at the age of 46, was a major American writer because he probed so expertly at cultural wounds. And I'd like to just read through uh, these slides. This is um, an ex-residence story, and this is a narrative uh, that he wrote about the Boston Rehab Center, where he lived. Because certain myths about both addiction and halfway houses die hard, I'll give you a little bio. I was raised in a solid, loving, two-parent family. None of my close relatives have substance problems. I have never been in jail or arrested. I've never even had a speeding ticket. In 1989, I already had a BA and one graduate degree and was in Boston to get another. And I was, at age 27, a late stage alcoholic and drug addict. I had been in detoxes and rehabs. I had been in locked wards in psych facilities. I had had at least one serious suicide attempt, a course of ECT, and so on. The diagnosis of my family, friends, and teachers was that I was bright and talented, but had emotional problems. I alone knew how deeply these problems were connected to alcohol and drugs, which I'd been using heavily since age 15. I therefore spent most of the 1980s on the horns of a dilemma that many addicts and alcoholics understand very well. On the one hand, I knew that drugs and alcohol controlled me, ran my life, and were killing me. On the other, I loved them. I mean, really loved them as in the sort of love where you'll do anything, tell yourself any sort of lie to keep from having to let the beloved go. This next slide is from his novel, Infinite Jest, um, which is written from the perspective of a variety of characters. And this passage is written from the point of view of the doctor. The doctor hadn't even pretended to try to take notes on all this. 
He couldn't keep himself from trying to determine whether the ambient insincerity the patient seemed to project during what appeared clinically to be a significant gamble and move toward trust and self-revealing was in fact projected by the patient or was somehow counter-transferred or projected onto the patient from the doctor's own psyche out of some sort of anxiety over the critical therapeutic possibilities her revelation of concern over drug use might represent. This is the perspective of the rehab counselor, and this is from a sort of uh, rehab counselor's manifesto, and he, he's writing um, a series of principles here, and here are a few of them. That nobody who's ever gotten sufficiently addictively enslaved by a substance to need to quit the substance and has successfully quit it for a while and been straight, and but then has for whatever reason gone back and picked up the substance again, has ever reported being glad that they did it, used the substance again, and gotten re-enslaved. That other people can often see things about you that you yourself cannot see, even if those people are stupid. That everybody is identical in their secret unspoken belief that way deep down they are different from everyone else. And finally, this is the perspective of the addict, and this is the addict at a Narconics Anonymous meeting, um, so he's describing his experience. If you sit up front and listen hard, all the speaker's stories of decline and fall and surrender are basically alike and like your own. Fun with the substance, then very gradually less fun, then significantly less fun because of like blackouts you suddenly come out of on the highway going 145 kph with companions you do not know, nights you awake from in unfamiliar bedding next to somebody who doesn't even resemble any known sort of mammal, three-day blackouts you come out of and have to buy a newspaper to even know what town you're in, yes, gradually less and less actual fun, but with some physical need for the substance now, instead of the former voluntary fun. Then, at some point, suddenly, just very little fun at all. My final example is the classic TV serial Breaking Bad, a show that has attracted one of the largest audiences in television history, in part because of its skill in updating so many cultural mythologies and literary archetypes, among them the quest narrative. The serial portrays a hero, Walter White, confronting a life-ending cancer diagnosis, who becomes a producer of methamphetamine, setting out into a terrifyingly violent world of drug traffickers to achieve financial security for his family before he dies, and in so doing, discovers a new self. Walter White's loss of innocence and recognition of his own capacity for ruthlessness and violence is the show's great achievement plot-wise. It not only throws a monkey wrench 
into the conventional TV expectation that protagonists, Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore, Joe Friday, don't change. But it also forces TV audiences to confront their own appetites for murderous revenge. Running around in briefs and a gas mask in Breaking Bad's first episode, Walter White is a Walter Mitty type, a man who understands chemistry but is clueless about how to make his way in the world. Underinsured, like many American men of modest means, and Walt's surname, White, asks us to read him as part of the suffering white underclass experiencing a marked deterioration in their morbidity and mortality rates, identified by Princeton economists Anne Case and Angus Deaton, those besieged by the effects of the global economy. Walt is already, prior to the cancer diagnosis, moonlighting at a car wash to make ends meet because his salary as a high school chemistry teacher is inadequate to the needs of his growing family. Such details reveal Walt as an embodiment of what Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobb called the hidden injuries of class, a brilliant 1972 study of the psychological effects of the American class system that remains relevant today. What makes Breaking Bad such a powerful show is the sustained critique of inequality in the U.S. that underlies its crowd-pleasing drama and sensationalism. This critique is exemplified by Walt's diagnosis of fourth-stage cancer, which the show presents as a terrible misfortune and an economic catastrophe. As a secondary school teacher in a country that neither values its teachers nor considers itself obligated to provide them with sufficient medical insurance coverage, Walt's illness casts him as both a victim of fate and a loser in the health lottery of American capitalism. Yet this double damnation, universal and sociopolitical, proves the pivotal catalyst in Walt's journey to American style masculinity. The more enmeshed he becomes in the criminal underworld of the New Mexico drug trade, the more empowered and self-realized he feels. Far more than simply something that Walter White is good at, crime turns out to be the means to his truest self. He was put on earth, it seems, to be strategic, heartless, and cruel. And this is what it takes to be a self-reliant man in early 21st century America, according to Breaking Bad, a southern term for going wild. The serial reveals how step by step an ordinary man becomes a monster, depicting Walt setting up his own do-it-yourself methamphetamine factory in a dilapidated trailer, and then growing the small profitable business through the distribution chain, from street sales, through trafficking, to Mexican drug cartels, each level requiring more extreme callousness and violence. The show is vividly realistic in its portrait of law enforcement, 
the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, represented by Walt's macho brother-in-law, Hank, is as likely to be conspiring with drug dealers as it is to be policing them. The show also offers a realistic depiction of addicts' experiences through the serial's other lead character, Walt's sidekick and former high school student, Jesse Pinkman. The portrait of addiction seems to me entirely negative, which is why I am mystified by the conclusion drawn by some reviewers that Breaking Bad glamorizes addiction. Expert chemists who have reviewed the show note that its writers, directors, producers, and actors have done their homework and provide a strikingly accurate portrait of the chemical processes of methamphetamine production. Chemistry in Breaking Bad is the theme underlying everything, the metaphor for human existence. When Walt tells his class in the first episode that, quote, chemistry is, well, technically, it's the study of matter, but I prefer to see it as the study of change. He is describing the show's plot as conceived by its creator, Vince Gilligan. In recalling his original vision of Breaking Bad, Gilligan said, quote, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have a show that takes the protagonist and transforms him into the antagonist? The notion that villains are compelling is also, let us remember, basic to great literature and film. From Milton's Satan to Mario Puzo's Don Corleone, evil characters have run circles around the dutiful moralists among them, charming us with their every transgression. Human existence, then, is a journey from one chemical form to another. The theme of change is central to the show in another sense. Breaking Bad portrays a victim subjected to change involuntarily, a cancer diagnosis, who becomes an avenger, taking matters into his own hands. Walter White will change on his own terms, rejecting the powers that dominate him, whether universal, chance, or fate, or political, the result of social inequities. Indeed, the show suggests that the problem of drug addiction is inextricably linked to the collision between people's socioeconomic circumstances and their need for dignity, to feel ennobled and capable of some kind of transcendence. In keeping with the experience of De Quincey's opium eater, hearing an insect walking on the ground or a flower being bruised, makes them feel good about being alive. Like Walt, the show's drug addicts seek to control their relationships to the highs and lows of experience, the losses and gains that disarrange any life. But like Walt, who becomes a slave to his own quest for power and control, losing the family he sought to protect and defend in the process, the show's addicts are themselves ultimately controlled, enslaved by the drugs that seem to empower and liberate them. Again, 
The show combines existential commentary with social and political critique. Walter White, the hero of Breaking Bad, epitomizes this tension between control, self-actualization, and power, becoming the slave of circumstances he thought he controlled, but discovers he doesn't. What Walt can't control, above all, is the love and loyalty of his family, who abandon him once they discover the truth about the murderous monster he has become. Walt is so alienated from his family that they neither want to see him nor accept his money. Thus, he is forced to funnel his drug fortune to them without their knowledge, depriving him of their appreciation, respect, and love. This is a cruel irony for a man who has believed that he is measured not by how he treats his family, but rather by his ability to support them financially. Faced with a terminal cancer diagnosis and the decision about what sort of legacy he wants to leave behind, Walt sacrifices his family's love and loyalty for his pride. As he admits in the final episode, it has neither been simply about the money nor about his love of kin. Leaving his family financially fortified in the wake of his death is as much an affirmation of his own power and identity, being a man who provides. So Walter White is a drug maker, a drug dealer, a killer, a sneak, and a liar. But we cheer him on because he's so much more alive as a vengeful monster than as a dutiful victim. The show thrusts this moral dilemma on us as viewers, and in so doing illuminates the human condition. On the one hand, we are all just compounds, victims being ushered from lifeless matter to life and back to lifeless matter in death. But what we manage to make of our preposterously abbreviated time living in the world is up to us. Whether we decide to be decent, moral, generous, or decide to break bad like Walter White is a choice we all do get to make. Still, the show never lets us forget that any individual's range of choices is narrowed by their place in society. Much has been written about whether Breaking Bad even supports questions of this kind. But the show's moral compass seems confirmed by the fact that people are arguing about it. Breaking Bad reminds us continuously of our own complicity with the situations that confront the protagonists. So where do these various literary and TV accounts of the experience of addiction leave us? Let me suggest that they help to highlight what one recent analyst of addiction, Mark Lewis, has characterized as its, quote, normality, unquote. As someone who has seen addiction from the perspective of the addict, Lewis was himself addicted to opium, heroin, and methamphetamine and the medical professional, Lewis is a neuropsychologist 
Lewis contends that the most useful way to view addiction is as, quote, an extreme form of normality, even an extreme form of learning, unquote. Moreover, the border between conventional or acceptable relationships to drugs and medications and extreme and dangerous relationships to them is often tenuous, perilously so. To see addiction in this way is to come to terms with its omnipresence. Addicts, after all, are found in every class, culture, gender, religion, and nationality. They are our mothers, fathers, siblings, friends, and colleagues. In short, they are us. Until we are able to confront this fact, that is, until we stop othering addicts and the experience of addiction, we will be dancing around the problem. By giving us vivid access to the authentic feelings and struggles of addicts and their states, the works I have discussed today help us to recognize profound truths about human fragility and desire and to recognize how close any one of us could or might be to such conditions. And finally, intimacy and empathy are keys to knowledge and understanding. No problem that afflicts human beings can be remedied without them. Thank you.